All right, if you guys don't mind, I'm going to start. We're kind of short on time, so I'm going to uh, pound this lecture out. So uh, we used to have lit reviews when I was an intern, and I, I'm not, I don't remember if we did it yet last year, but I'm going to try to bring it back. Uh, I was kind of underwhelmed with the uh, articles that I found, but we'll, we'll do our best with what we got. So your first case is a critical trauma, 24-year-old, gunshot wound times two, is hypotensive in the field. He comes into ED and you're given IV fluids and you're given PRBCs and you order RIP blood and we had this great transfusion lecture. Uh, so we kind of know what we're doing, but do we have any other options? So the, questions, the question I've asked myself throughout the last year and even before that is what the shit is transoxemic acid? Like what is it? Why do we do it? How does it work? Why don't we use it at UCI? So let me tell you what I found. So it's basically, it's a synthetic derivative of an amino acid, which is lysine. And lysine blocks the conversion of plasminogen to plasmin, and it works as an antifibrinolytic. Um, so it promotes hemostasis. And the motivation to use this in trials is anesthesiologists were using it in these electric surgery patients to promote hemostasis and decrease bleeding. So they figured, hey, if those guys are using it, why aren't we using it in our critically ill uh, trauma patients? So in 2010, there was a study called the CRASH-2 study, and it had a large N number, 20,000 patients, and they gave transexemic acid to patients at risk of bleeding or who are actually bleeding. And their primary outcome was death at four weeks. Secondary outcomes that they measured were vaso-occlusive uh, uh, of vascular events like MIs, PEs, strokes, DVTs, and you can see why they wanted to measure that is because if you're giving an antifibrinolytic, you want to make sure you're not causing harm on the other level uh, as well. And other outcomes, surgical interventions, was there an uh, increase or decreased need for blood transfusions, and what was the amount of blood transfused if there was a need for a transfusion. So that was the do dose they gave, one gram over 10 minutes and then one gram over eight hours versus a placebo when it was uh, randomized. So these were the results, and I kind of highlight the important ones. So all causes of mortality, there was a clinic, there was a statistically and clinically significant decrease in the group that got transoxemic acid. There was also uh, a decrease, both uh, clinically and statistically, in death as a cause of bleeding. And the good news was that there was no uh, increased risks of any vasovascular uh, occlusion. So it didn't seem to cause harm. But the weird thing that they noted was, if this thing is supposed to promote hemostasis, then why is there no difference in blood transfusion between the two populations? So that was kind of odd to them. So they, a year later, uh, did this crash to like uh, subgroup analysis. And, they, and their, you know, their um, question was, you know, how did this thing work? There was no difference in transfusion reactions. So what was really going on? So, uh, they kind of came up with an alternative hypothesis was maybe it's not so much the uh, uh, conversion between plasmin and plasminogen, maybe it's acting by reducing the pro-inflammatory markers of plasmin. Uh, so they figured if that's true, then it's probably going to work really early. So why don't we kind of break it down into time levels? So what they found was there was a strong evidence that the effect of transoxemic acid on death was varied according to time. And what they were kind of disappointed to see was that actually if given after three hours, it increased the re risk of death. So they're like, huh, well, this, that's not good because we're trying to hype this thing up and it's actually causing more people to die. Uh, into one to, though, before one hour, um, 
it was shown to be a decrease in mortality, and that was corroborated within the one to three hour zone. But again, after three hours, there was actually an increased risk of death. And they had a couple explanations that are not really, uh, you know, they're, they're not sure if this is exactly what's going on, but an explanation was, you know, after three hours, these patients were just sicker, and their the disease progression had just kind of kind of gone out of hold, and transoxemic acid or not, these patients were going to die anyway. So th that's why those people die. Uh, another thing is, you know, Malinowski and Dr. Katzer mentioned a couple things, like these patients get acidotic and they get hyperthermic. So giving this molecule might, uh, in those conditions, like you're, you're, you might denature the protein, or for some reason it, it, might, it might not work in these acidotic conditions. So that was another thing. Uh, their last kind of uh, theory was uh, these patients, you get in this like hyper uh, anti-fibrinolytic state and over time you're some degree uh, you're going to get into this DIC picture where you have clots and bleeding and if you give transoxemic acid and mo cause more clots you're going to cause that DIC picture to sway in the kind of clot arm so these are all reasons why they were thinking greater than three hours that that's why th there was an increased risk of bleeding so there does seem to be promise with this drug especially early on if given like less than three hours um, but there's still some questions, so I'm not sure if this thing is ready for prime time yet. And, and I personally have not seen it used at UCI. I don't know. BC, have you guys ever given it? No. no? Do we even have it? I have no idea. Okay. So I don't think it's ready for prime time yet, but certainly some good promising data on it. Many potential. I mean, to the, the differences wouldn't have to be very much to get a one 
the one and a half percent difference. Uh, it might be true. It might be true. I'm not saying it's not. I'm not saying I don't believe it. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm still anxious um, with that many sites. If each site contributes, get like 100 sites each contributing 100 patients, that would be a little bit, I, I, it would lend some credibility to more standardization of what's going on. Or 240 sites. Valid points. Um, our second case, this is actually a case that I had. BC, were you in on this trauma, this football player guy? Mm -hmm. Yeah? So uh, I found an article, kind of a similar situation. So 16-year-old football player, he got knocked out. He was blocking his alignment, and he was out for five minutes cold, and he doesn't really remember the event, and he comes in as a trauma, and obviously the order scans, and the head and C-spine are normal. So you tell me as a concussion. What does that mean? I have a concussion. Like, what, what is this guy going to go home and experience? So we kind of talk about our kidney stone patients. You want to tell them, you know, your pain's not going to get better in two or three days. Uh, it's going to take a couple of weeks. So you want to set the expectations for your patients. And that's kind of what they did. They uh, prospectively uh, looked at all these patients who had concussions, normal CTs, and uh, it was 68 patients, and they followed them up at one month. And they found that... 72% uh, of the patients still complained of, bless you, headache, dizziness, fatigue, and cognitive impairment, like difficulty focusing. So uh, the kind of point of this article was set your expectations for these patients. Tell them that they're going to probably feel crappy, and, and most importantly, tell them that they need to be seen by a physician before being cleared uh, to resume contact sports. Uh, hopefully a physician that's knowledgeable uh, in the area of sports-related concussions. So again, just set the expectations. You, you don't necessarily want these patients coming back, and then they're going to get their head respawn, and you know, there's a time, money, radiation, all these commitments that you're going to have to make. So these are patients you want to kind of, uh, you know, before you discharge them, get a good conversation about, about what they should expect. Um, my uh, third case, and I'm sure you guys have had this happen to you before, so a 71-year-old female brought in by their daughter. She's complaining of chest pain, headache, extremity numbness, belly pain, vision changes, cough. There's a new rash. There's, she's been peeing more. She has decreased hearing, left elbow pain, myalgias, and there's a new lesion on her right big toe. So we've all kind of had this patient. You kind of do your workup, and she goes home, and she dies two days later. And the family says, no one ever told me what's going on. So... This is one of my actually favorite studies. So they took 844 patients and they recorded their discharge instructions. And 477 of them were uh, audible, so they can kind of follow up what was said. And they looked at nine different variables and they measured each component, either minimal, adequate, or excellent. And you guys can see the variables. I'm not going to read them off. And they s saw that the majority of the discharges were conducted by their primary physician. Uh, or, or the primary provider, either their nurse or their physician. And most patients were given an opportunity to ask questions, an overwhelming majority, even though that the quality of their interaction was minimal. They were instructed about the medications. They were given an explanation of their symptoms, as well as instructions about follow-up and self-care. However, uh, fewer patients, only about half, uh, receive explanations of their expo expected course of illness. This is kind of going to our concussion guy a little bit, maybe. Uh, and they were, less of them were given recommendations for a specific time for follow-up. And, uh, and only a third of them were given instructions about their symptoms. And even worse, I think probably the most important, only 22% uh, were given, uh, a, uh, like, 
do you understand what I'm telling you? Like, so even if you did all these things, you don't even know if they understood what you're telling them. So uh, the point of this is obviously we live in a litigious society. You want to make sure, not only that, but for your patient's safety, like you need to follow up with your PND in 12 hours or come back if you're somehow unable to, right? So you want to make this clear and you want to make you want to be sure that they understood you. So always have them kind of repeat stuff back and make sure you know what they're saying. So this was obviously uh, a study that showed that it was very poor communication. Um, our fourth case, uh, nine-year-old, this is actually a case that I had. So tenderness uh, uh, palpation at the elbow and distal neurovascular intact, and you get this radiograph. What do you guys think, med students? Is this, do you guys see anything or not so much? Nice. What's that? No other view, just you got this one to work with. Okay, what's that? Perfect, so we get a little bit of this thing here, right? And uh, I don't know, I couldn't really, I don't know, maybe a posterior fat pad is kind of tough to tell. So for those that uh, are kind of unsure how to read a pediatric elbow, we'll go through this real quick. So there's a couple things you want to look at. Uh, one, you want to see if this is an adequate radiograph. And the way you want to do that is you're going to get this figure of eight. Oh, this is dying on me. Uh, figure of eight sign or hourglass sign. And that'll let you know that there's a true uh, lateral radiograph because you're going to be drawing lines and looking at fat pads. And you, you can get false positive and false negative, negatives if you don't have that uh, hourglass sign. The next thing you're going to do, you're going to look at fat pads. There's a posterior fat pad that's never normal. If you see a posterior fat pad, that's a sign of uh, joint effusion, hemarthrosis, basically an occult fracture. Uh, you can have some degree of an anterior fat pad, but uh, when it's protuberant like that, that's called a sale sign. So that's considered abnormal as well. The next thing you want to do is you want to draw a rate, uh, anterior humeral line, and it goes down here, and it should uh, intersect the... Uh, capitellum, like one-third of the capitellum, the anterior one-third. So that looks like it's intact, so that's normal. And the next thing you want to do is draw the uh, radial head uh, line as well. And it should bisect the middle, middle of the radial head and the middle of the capitellum. So if all those lines are intact, you probably don't have a dislocation. And the last thing you want to do, look at the ulnar uh, bone, look at the radius, look at the humeral head, look at the electronon, make sure you don't see any fractures. So these are all the things you want to do. So anterior fat pad, we said if it's present, if there's a sale sign present, it's abnormal. But what if you have a normal anterior fat pad? Does that tell us anything? So these guys were assessing whether or not a, anti a normal anterior fat pad uh, gave us any indication whether or not a fracture was not present. So what they found was that among 197 patients, they 113 of them uh, had a normal anterior fat pad, and only two of those patients had a fracture. Uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't a sale sign. It was not a sale sign. So they kind of concluded that patients with, with no sale sign, you can basically say they don't have a fracture, which I think I would probably dis disagree with. Um, if you look at their sensitivity, it's uh, 86 to 99%. So your lower, the lower end of your confidence interval is only 86%. So are you not going to splint these kids up and they have a normal anterior fat pad and send them home? I would probably say no. I think if you suspect a fracture, they still have pain, I would still immobilize these kids and have them follow up with ortho. So I didn't really buy this study as much. Even though their numbers look okay, um, I don't think I would join the boat on this necessarily. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, so they drew angle as, angles as well, and they, and they said greater than 19 degrees. Yeah, that was their thing. So I don't know where they came up with the number. I kind of read the paper. I just, you know, you got to draw a line in the sand, and theirs was 19 degrees. So that's why that little triangle's up there. But, I mean, we're not going to be doing that kind of stuff anyway. So if the kid's having pain, splint and mobilize and follow up. The second case, this is actually a patient I had, the actual radiograph. And this, from this study, uh, I learned a, a thing or two, and I actually did what... Uh, I learned in this case. So seven-year-old female, she fell off a swing, forearm pain, uh, minimally displaced ulnar and radial fracture. And ortho comes down to like, you know what, we don't need to procedurally sedate her, but is there anything you can give her just to keep her comfortable? So what are your options? What are you going to do? You want to put an IV in her? You want to give her PO meds? What do you guys want to do? So the hospital gave me so much trouble for doing this. They called me like, the pharmacy called me like three different times. And I had to lie and say, say I've done it before, <laughs> before they let me do this. So this study took, how many kids? 81 kids, and they gave intranasal fentanyl, two mics per kid, that is the dose. And they looked at two different scores. The one we're familiar with is the Wong-Baker Wong score, the faces. And there was another one where I couldn't find a picture of this visual analog scale, but we're not going to talk about that. And their primary outcomes were pain at 10, 20, and 30 minutes. And they, uh, a significant response they deemed was a decrease in one face at these sites. So that's the Wong-Baker uh, face uh, scale. And so at baseline, these kids said, I'm, in, I'm at five faces of pain. And at 10 minutes with this fentanyl, they were at three faces. And at 20 and 30 minutes, they were at two faces. So they found that uh, they were able to, uh, uh, you know, um, 74 and 87% of patients respectively achieved clinical significant pain reductions with the intranasal fentanyl. So I thought, I tried it, and it worked out pretty well for me. So maybe... So yeah, so the most you can do is one cc, and uh, you want to have them blow their nose really well. And to increase absorption, you can do like half in one nostril and half in the other nostril. Uh, there's an atomizer. We have it in the ED. You want to make sure you get it up there and kind of uh, point medially, because that's where all your mucosa is. And one thing you don't want to do is somehow spray it in the room, because you guys are going to be narked out <laughs> along with the patient, right? So there, there are some... Uh, the, so uh, if they make dilated uh, intranasal, man, we're having a ball in the ED. We have a dilated dad. Dilated, yeah. So. Just take them all in one room. That's right, man. Have, Great, just walk through it. It's like a decon. <laughs> Put a disco ball or something. So you want it concentrated, don't dilute it, max one cc, you can split it up into each nostril, have them blow their nose, and don't spray it in the room. These are the kind of general principles. So I was pharmacy worried about it. They were, we've never done this, and I don't know, and they were just so, super sketched out. They called me three times. Um, pharmacy gave me the same trouble for Rogan the other day, too. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you've given that one. <laughs> I was pretty bummed, but I, it came, and nice. we did it, so. 50-year-old um, male having sudden onset, worst headache of uh, their life, and doesn't, hasn't had a headache before, and <laughs> nausea, vomiting, 
And uh, other than being uh, Patrick Popa's idol growing up, uh, <laughs> do we know why this guy's up on the slide? Because he had one. So, uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage. So this, uh, the classic teaching is like over time the blood's going to hemolyze and if you get a CT it's going to be difficult to say is this CSF, is this blood, what's going on in the brain. So the classic teaching has always been CTLP, right, if your uh, concern is high enough. So these guys did a prospective study, uh, 3,000 patients, and they wanted to see what, how, how sensitive the third generation CT scanners were for detecting subarachnoid hemorrhage. And they said a subarachnoid hemorrhage is any uh, subarachnoid blood in the CTs, anthochromia in the CSF, any red cells in the final tube, or any sort of cerebral angiography test that was positive. So they took these uh, 3,000 patients, and for overall, like less than six hours, greater than six hours, the sensitivity for picking up a subarachnoid was 93%, with a confidence interval 89 to 95%. But the real, uh, you know, the real cool thing about this st study was that if scanned before six hours, the sensitivity was 100%. Uh, this is a third generation uh, scanner. This was read by uh, a legit radiologist uh, who knew, knew what they were doing. And Dr. Koenig actually reviewed this article, and her editorial was, this is a safe procedure that we can kind of, if it's under six hours, it's a third generation scanner. It's, if it's a qualified radiologist, then you're okay not doing the LP. With the caveat of unless you're looking at other causes of headache. So, I, so that's what I was asking earlier. Um, I don't know. We're going to have to find out. I guess we have different scanners. So be sure which scanner they go to, I guess. Um, I think it was either 64 or 256, maybe 256. I'll double check. I'll send you guys an email. Yeah. Let's keep doing those LPs. All right, maybe. I'll find out. I'll get back to you guys on that. But a pretty interesting uh, result that could potentially change practice for people out there. Um, the seventh case I did not like, and I'll tell you why. So you get a 64-year-old. Uh, who looks like they're in septic shock and you're getting ready to put one of these bad boys in. So do we always need to get an x-ray after we do these uh, central lines? So one big thing I didn't like about this study is it's not generalizable to our patient population. Uh, 1,200 patients, ultrasound-guided IJs, and it was done in vascular or interventional suites. Obviously not sick patients, you know, you're not, you're not kind of fit, like going crazy trying to put this line in and a patient who's actively trying to die. And uh, they got post-procedure x-rays and they found none of them had pneumothorax on the x-ray. So they said, you do not have to get an x-ray after putting in a central line. But there's one, or a couple of problems, but one, what's that? Uh, IJ. Yeah. But what's the problem with that? Why, like, why do we get x-rays for placement right so who like I I mean yeah you want to look for a pneuma but you want to make sure you know where this thing is going as well so I mean the patient population doesn't match with, with ours and they're not really doing the x-ray for reasons that we're doing the x-ray so I you know this was not right but still you're gonna get your x-ray anyway if you're worried about a pneumo you can do an ultrasound which has been shown to 
be more sensitive than the x-ray actually. So in that case, I can see not doing the x-ray, but placement's still an issue, so I would still get my x-ray. How about this little guy? So he was playing, he's angry, and uh, he hit his head, and I don't know, mom's like, I don't know, did he lose consciousness, who knows, and he vomited once, and he's maybe complaining of a headache, so what do you want to do? Do you want to spin this kid? Do you not want to spin this kid? What about the role of observing the kid in the ED? So they, they took a look at these kids, and they wanted to see if observation changed anything with these kids. Did observation make you get more CTs, less CTs? How about the rate of traumatic brain injury in these kids? So they looked at intermediate risk children, and uh, those were kids with normal mental status, no evidence of skull fracture, and at least one of the following, either loss of consciousness, severe mechanism, vomiting, not acting normally, headache, and they defined uh, clinical, clinically uh, important traumatic brain injury as any sort of intracranial injury causing death, a neurosurgical intervention or intubation, or staying in a hospital two days or more. So uh, a big end number, 40,000 patients, uh, and they found that observed patients were less likely to undergo CT, 31% versus 35. So that's, what was it, 39 fewer CT scans per 1,000 children if you just kind of watch them. And these are not like the super sick kids, obviously, intermediate risk. And, however, there was no rate uh, or there was no change in uh, clinically important traumatic brain injury. So it didn't deter you from detecting them and didn't really help you as well. So I'm glad their conclusion wasn't anything related to traumatic brain injury. It was that you, if you watch them, you're more likely not to do the CT scan, which I think makes a lot of sense. What do you mean? No, absolutely not. Oh yeah, so you're taking out that population. Oh, there's many flaws to this study. Another one is we don't, they don't specify how long they observed them. So should I just watch them for 30 minutes? Is this kid sitting in the ED for six hours? Um, that's why I was saying I was kind of overwhelmed with the quality of studies, unfortunately, at least in the trauma perspective. But I agree with you, like we don't know, we can't compare these kids to you know, anything else, so it's tough to say. I was just happy they didn't make a conclusion regarding traumatic brain injury, honestly. Like, we have found that just observing him will, you know, blah, 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 blah. But I, I hear what you're saying. Um, the next study, uh, case number nine. So this kid falls on his shoulder, and you think he has a dislocation. So you want to use ketamine, but what about emergence reaction? And uh, Schultz was actually involved in, in this particular study. So they... Uh, looked at ketamine and they gave it either IM or IV and they gave placebo uh, 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 and they gave Versed and or, or placebo, not and. So ketamine and either Versed or placebo and they found that uh, uh, recovery agitation occurred less in the patients that received Versed and, and there was no uh, difference in adverse effects. So their kind of thought is that if you give, if you co-administer uh, Versed, then that can mitigate the effects of the emergence reaction. And this study has been shown in kids, but this was the first study done in adults. So uh, if you're concerned about that, that's certainly an option as well. Um, and last but not least, and then we're almost out of time, there's a, so you get this patient. So it's a 44-year-old male, and 
this patient's involved in a trauma and the GCS is kind of iffy, 10, but you don't think they need to be intubated and they're hypotensive with a distended abdomen and trauma wants to take this guy to the OR now, but you're like, hey, wait up. What about the head CT? Do we want to see if there's anything going on in the head? So what can you do, a quick and dirty way of figuring out if this patient has elevated intracranial pressure? So this particular patient population were patients that were having invasive monitoring of their ICPs. All of them had elevated ICPs greater than 20 millimeters mercury. And what they wanted to do is see if they did an ultrasound, would that correlate with the elevated ICPs that they had. So for the optic nerve ultrasound, what you want to do is you want to get the optic nerve and you want to measure it three millimeters below. And the cutoff that I found in books is five millimeters across. Some say five, some say 5.7, some, some say six. This particular study used a cutoff of five and they found that the sensitivity uh, of detecting an elevated ICP with the ultrasound using a cutoff of five was 90%. A few caveats, the, the ICP will take, like that, this particular trauma patient, uh, it's going to take a while for them to develop intracranial pressure that's elevated. So don't go putting the ultrasound on and say, oh, it's normal, they don't have that. Uh, this only works when they've had a couple hours to kind of accumulate that elevated pressures. That's when it's good to use the ultrasound. So I don't know if this necessarily has, I mean, if your patient's presenting late, and for example, you're thinking maybe pseudotumor cerebri or something weird, hydrocephalus, uh, the ultrasound can be a quick and dirty way you can get your uh, uh, information without sending them to the CT scanner if you're unable to. Yeah. It does? Yeah, that's a, I think, I mean, this patient was, this, these patients were studied in the ICU. So I'm trying to figure out how we can use this in the ED. And the only way I could figure is, like, like I said, if your patients had these symptoms for a couple hours, a couple of days, then maybe you would be able to do it. But then again, I think we'd get the CT on those patients anyway. So what the utility is, I'm not sure yet. A lidocaine study? That's a good point. I know. The three... Uh, docs, uh, out, documents out there. <laughs> That's right. That'd be cool. Dr. Schultz, you know the ketamine IM, do you typically use four milligrams per kilogram? You do? Yes. Steve Green, I've talked to him for years about this. Initially, we both had been using four, and both came to some conclusions. He actually studied it. Came to believe that there were still some kids that just didn't quite go down to four. And so I sort of went to five and got good results that way. He did the same thing, then studied it, and found the same thing that actually going to five eliminated that small group that seemed not to quite go down to four. So both he and I now go to five. You do five mixed per kg I am? Wow. You think four is too low? I think four works for the vast majority, but. Do a lot of it, and I do use ketamine a lot. Uh, it's dissatisfying <laughs> enough that it's dissatisfying enough that one of the things about ketamine is, is it, if you use the proper dose, it's, it's incredibly reliable. It really gets you what you want each and every time. So why were we were we blowing that out when it's a relative that has a huge safety profile? It's very hard to kill somebody with ketamine. So if you're going one millimeter. So he has actually a study that shows this, um, but it, it, 
seems like there's no downside for the upside. So that's what we need now across the board is five. But go on IM. And does IM work just as well as IV? Last a little longer, comes on a little bit slower, <coughs> but um, the, and the, the only downside of the IM is the recovery is long. The IV recovers a little bit faster. And actually, in our study, we looked at that and found that the IM, which is other than found it too, it's not new news, but that the IM takes a little while longer for them to recover. Do you routinely give the Versed? Hmm? Do you routinely give the Versed? Or is that like a case by case basis? No. Over. Makes sense. And you guys have a little bit of a quiz. Whoops. Where's the quiz? Oh no. Is it coming up? Quizzy. Yeah, I'll figure out the scanner thing. Yeah. Try out intranasal fentanyl. I'm a fan. Two mics per kick. Yeah, one CC max. Yeah, one CC max. 